Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. We're digging into the digital revolution and the incredible impact it is having on every aspect of our lives, every industry, and rapidly every company on earth. One of our favorite monthly guests and contributors is Wayne Saden. Wayne has been a CIO, a CTO, and a CDO, and currently advises boards and CEOs on how to weave technology most successfully into their overall business strategy. Wayne, thanks for being with us. Great to have you. Hey, Bob, as always, it's wonderful to be here. Good deal, Wayne. So, um, Wayne, there's some interesting things going on. I mean, I could, I don't even need to say that. This is that we live in uh, fascinating times these days, but there's a, a lot of stuff going on. I saw that you wanted to talk some about IBM and some other related things there, and then maybe hop over into something fairly extensive about boards, ITs, CIOs. Give us a little uh, overview, Wayne, of what you want to talk about today, and then we'll dig right into it. Sure, Bob. You know, there's always a topic on my mind. And now that I'm doing a lot more work with you and the Acceleration Economy Analyst team, I'm starting to think more about how to communicate technology to boards and about what boards do to technologists. So that's going to be a big part of my conversation today. But as I go through my morning, I always start by watching your show. So I get these ideas, hey, uh, Bob said this and Bob said that, and I agree or I disagree. So there's always something topical to speak about, and you do ferret out these great ideas. So we'll talk a little bit about IBM, one of the kind of grand companies from the heyday of technology that is seen by some incorrectly as maybe an also ran in cloud and why they're not. And then a comment that you uh, copied over from Oracle about cloud infrastructure, including database. So we'll touch on those for a minute and then get to the meat of our conversation. Okay, okay. Wayne, uh, I got to caution you a little bit on where you get some of your ideas. If you're, you know, I'm not sure I'm the best source for those things, but I'm flattered that you do so. So thank you. Thank you. Um, Wayne, kick it off here. I know uh, I talked some about uh, IBM signed this big deal with uh, Kaiser Bank from Spain. I think they have 21 million customers been around for a long time. And I thought it was interesting, Rain, right? And I think you touch on this. This is not a new partnership here, IBM and Kaiser Bank. It's, it's been going on for half a century. And that's the thing that people don't recognize. We have all this hype about the cloud vendors. So we got Amazon and we've got Google and we've got these new companies that weren't even around when IBM started putting mainframes in banks. You know, I've been doing technology for over 30 years. And banks were customers on their third or fourth upgrade by the time I, in my 20s, joined in the 1970s. So you've got a relationship of a large, intense user of IT, but, but not really a programming shop. You know, people today in the news talk about all this coding stuff as though everybody in industrial companies and banks and travel agencies spends all their time writing code. The, the real bottom line is we don't. We buy an ERP system. We buy a vertical application. In banking, there are many, many vendors that sell very high quality and very extensive and expensive products that hook all this stuff together. And so what differentiates a company going back 50 years was the kind of support they gave. You probably remember reporting on IBM providing the least computer and you got the software for free. That was a big deal, and the government broke it up because they said that was too big a monopoly. And so they made their, their bones on support when you were a big bank. Uh, I worked for some Wall Street banks in my youth, 
And the IBM rep that supported each of the banks I consulted to was considered a branch manager. They were that high up in the IBM hierarchy that they had one customer and they were a branch manager. And so IBM was very good at supporting the company on anything and everything about technology. That hasn't changed. IBM has been through many changes in management and focus and whether the cloud is important or services is important or mainframes are important. But I don't think they've ever changed the idea that, that enterprise customers get enterprise levels of support. And when you look at these, I'll call them upstart cloud companies, huge in revenue, but kind of short in tenure, they make their bones on, we have the coolest technology, the shiniest of shiny toys. We scale bigger, we invest more, we have cool stuff to build. But you know what? If you're the CIO of a global bank, global pharmaceutical company, global airline, that's not as important as when something breaks, you can get the attention of somebody one level down from the CEO of the major vendor. And so the companies like IBM, who've kind of fallen out of favor with maybe analysts and certainly with the, with the press, has always been there in the background competing and supporting. And, and, and now, Bob, you raised the point of the vertical cloud. People are starting to come around to the notion that the cloud technology that's so cool and powerful and fast moving is now being customized for financial services or transportation or hospitality or pharmaceuticals. Guess what? In the industries I worked in, they were customizing this stuff 40 and 50 years ago. And so now take IBM's growing capability in cloud and marry that with the focus on vertical cloud and add to that IBM's and you know Oracle and all the old mainframe companies focus on the customer. And it's a pretty hard comp combination to beat. So I say, and I've said this to you before, people counted Oracle and IBM and some other old line companies out. They don't have to have the shiniest shiny object. They have to have adequate technology, good support and good price and give the enterprise customer that kind of 360 degree package. And I think that's what you're starting to see with IBM and frankly with Oracle as well. Yeah, Wayne, you know, I, I was thinking about it as you were describing that, right? I think there's a lot of people probably, uh, you know, with our mobile devices, you get to a point where you say, ah, this one is just not quite doing it anymore. I should get a new one. But uh, you want to wait and wait and wait because, uh, you, I, you know, the switching thing, I wish that was some, I wish you just show up in the morning, and have, but you have to, you know, go through a certain process to do that. So the switching thing, can be tough you you know what you have and i think this this sort of the shiny toy thing there's got to be something you know much much more than that much deeper than that and i think if you think about a bank right and uh, you know especially one of the largest banks in europe the relationships that that bank has with its customers the relationship then that kaiju bank has with its technology vendor right? you're betting the entire corporation the future of the company the shareholders money all those customer relationships on it. And it's, it's not something to be taken lightly. So I think as you referred to Wayne, when it was uh, Howard Beauville, the senior vice president of IBM cloud, who said these big banks, heavily regulated industries, they're not going to jump at something just because it's sort of cool and fun. They might save a couple of nickels here or there. So they need those vertically integrated uh, specializations from governance and compliance and security and sovereignty and so forth like that. So uh, it, it is a, a very interesting time. And I thought it was 
one of those points when IBM wins this with the IBM for Financial Services Cloud and its new uh, multi-zone region in Spain, that's going to force all the other companies to get better. And more and more, I think, Wayne, I'd love to get your view on this, that the decision point, everybody's going to have this sort of pretty cool technology. And the decision point can be who's going to help take me into the future and understand me, my business, and my customers better than anyone else. Absolutely. It's that. Who's going to get me into the future, but who's going to keep me in the present? I won't name the bank, but when I was a young person starting out as a consultant, I heard a senior VP of the bank look at the IBM rep, again, branch manager status. They were doing a project. They needed a new mainframe, 20 million bucks. And the rep said something like, well, yeah, nine months from now, 10 months from now. And the senior VP looked at the IBM rep with a straight face and said, drive up to Armonk and stop a truck and tell them to deliver it here. And however they made it happen, a mainframe appeared two weeks later. And, and that's what you've got to have when you're running a giant technology company. Uh, you need what you need. And so it's about being able to be supported. Look, we're in an age now of supply chain disruption. We can't get people. We can't get stuff. We can't get network capabilities added because everybody's out of everything. So if your vendor can come through on the strength of that 50-year relationship, that matters more than the fact that somebody's database runs 12% faster or 7% cheaper. If you let all your customers down, who cares if it's the cheapest thing? Because to your point, they've had this relationship with you forever. And when you're talking about your money or your health, you know some of these critical industries, one chance to let a customer down is all it takes and they move to somebody else. So the IBMs of the world, the Oracles of the world have scars that the new companies just don't have because they've never been through the kind of crises that IBM, and I'll pick Oracle because I know that's another company we'll talk about, have been through with their clients. They've been through major growth. They've been through major technology shift. They've made, been through major problems. You know, Y2K, whatever it may be, they've been there. And, and I got to say, we remember the people that were there to support us. In my career as a CIO, there were people who let me down and I don't want to use them again. And there were people that were there for me. And if your organization has a reputation of being there, you can survive price changes. You can survive somebody with a little better support because we're not going to jump ship with 50 years of investment over the shiny new toy. And Wayne, I thought it was interesting, you know, one of the other things that you wanted to get into here a little on, I, I think this is a very healthy development overall is, I, you know, more and more, I see the terminology around cloud and how businesses use it tilt away from the original language that was created by the tech industry. And it's flowing more and more toward what the business customers need and want to talk about. And there's still some vestiges of this with, you know, infrastructure and platform and applications. But I think there's still platform technology, but sort of in the customer conversation, they seem to more be more interested. I need, I know I need applications and I need the infrastructure to run it. So there's some interesting dynamics in there that, that you wanted to discuss a little bit. Yeah, you were talking about Oracle and the comment had to do with the fact that database is part of infrastructure in the cloud. And when you think about the cloud traditionally, and you're right, it was the techies that came up with this. There was infrastructure as a service. I want to run on your server in your data center using your network, but I'll bring all my own programs. You know, that's of interest to the techies, the people who dwell in the bowels of the IT shop. 
They want a thing they can build stuff out of. But as I say, if you work for a bank, you work for an airline, you work for a pharmaceutical company, you are not mostly in the business of writing custom software. You don't want 5,000 servers necessarily. You want the capability provided by 5,000 servers. So if I want to put a database with a petabyte of data in it, do I care how many servers Oracle or IBM or Amazon runs it on? I should hope not. And so as we move away from the lower level infrastructure people buying stuff that looks like what they're comfortable with, I know what a server is. I know what a network is. I know what a switch is. Why are we buying at that level? Uh, when you want to buy electricity to run your new steel mill, you probably don't go inspect the generator. You know, you ask them commercially, can you produce this many uh, megawatts of power with this uptime? Show me your disaster plan. Show me that you are a real business and then that you can meet my commercial needs. And so even if you're developing your own application, what I don't need is to know how many servers it runs on. I need to know that it can handle my 5,000 users with this model of service. So when you throw in tools like databases, performance monitoring, security, these are the higher level services that quite frankly, I hope the vendor is better at than I am. Because if they're not better at it, why am I paying them? Mm -hmm. So I don't want to write my own database. I want Oracle to provide me a database, whether it's MySQL or the Oracle intelligent database, you know, my application will determine that. But infrastructure is moving up higher. I don't want to buy the basic stuff. I want to buy what the stuff does for me. And so, you know, as you point out quite a bit, and I believe in, we want to buy the SaaS app. We want to buy the general ledger. We want to buy the order fulfillment. We want to buy the product configurator, the electronic health record system. For most of us, it's about how do I get a monolithic or suite of applications and then hook them together in innovative ways. Most of us don't want to be in the software business if we're not in the software business. We want to buy an application from a vendor that runs well that does what we want, that is open enough that we can hook it to stuff and that we'll, we can grow with. And so when you say, when Oracle says that uh, database is part of cloud infrastructure, I say, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, the whole platform thing, while those platform technologies are very important in the minds of the customers, you know, I, I don't need to hear about all that, right? Um, you know, it's, it's the tech industry putting itself at the middle instead of putting the customer at the middle. So I, I think it's a very healthy move forward. And Wayne, along with all those, pieces you just mentioned coming up the stack to those higher level business differentiators. I think also those things are like industry cloud, industry specific solutions. It is just becoming astonishing. And I'll just say um, in Oracle's earnings call on September 13th, um, Larry Ellison for the first time ever made quite a concerted point during his opening remarks on the earnings call. He said, Oracle's gonna get into things in the cloud with what he called our banking partners, which customers. So the big tech vendor and a big bank building things together that neither could ever do independently. And I think this is the extraordinary thing about these vertical solutions that's gonna, again, uh, I think hyper accelerate the pace of innovation and capabilities within industry. That's a very exciting time. Yeah, and to your point as well, a company like Oracle, and remember, I remember when Oracle first went into applications and everybody laughed or sneered or snickered. What did they know about applications? They're an infrastructure company. They're a database company. And I think the wisdom of Larry Ellison 
who I've never met, don't know, but I see what he's accomplished. And he said applications are going to be bigger and they're going to be, they're going to be stickier. The, the problem we have in a lot of our businesses is we don't look at switching cost. If I'm buying raw server capacity and I don't like Google's price, as long as I can get the data out of their data center, I can move it over to somebody else's server. So from the vendor perspective, if they're selling a commodity, what happens in commodities? It's a race to the bottom. We all offer the cheapest price for the most performance. And as soon as somebody slips behind, everybody switches over to the other company. So your margins are continuously shrinking. And in the cloud industry, they've been investing and investing and investing in capability, in, in capacity. And so their unit cost is coming down faster than they're having to cut their price. If you look at a platform as a service and more particularly software as a service applications, it's very hard to switch banking systems. If you're a bank and you've got a billion dollars invested in your core deposit system or your core lending system over 30, 40, 50 years, and you've got 500 applications plugged into it, a vendor comes in and goes, hi, I got a better application than the one you've been running for 50 years. You don't say, oh, well, let's have a couple hour meeting and decide. That's a four year planning process and a 10 year migration. And by the way, you're gonna lose all the hair on your head or turn gray. And you might wind up going through two CIOs, three CTOs, and one executive VP or chairperson. It is not for the faint of heart. And so when a vendor gets you with a product that's sticky and high margin, because it's differentiated, they win. And quite frankly, if the product serves my needs and the vendor invests in it, I win. You know, you did a thing this morning about the utility industry, and I, I listened into that because I used to be in that industry. The utility industry has enormous numbers of customers and fairly low margins and very old technology. And a vendor that can get in there, can get a purchase decision, tends to be in there for decades. They don't switch vendors every couple of years. The utility industry thinks in terms of, well, a power plant lasts 50 years, so I'll make a 50-year decision. That's their planning horizon. And so if you're a vendor and you can provide the right product at the right price, and there are no exogenous disturbances, for example, smart meters, when smart meters came out, everybody went, oh my God, I've got to support them. And now, if you ever did the math, by the way, going from monthly meter reads to 15 minutely meter reads, you have 1,860 times as much data. So imagine you're the CIO and they put in smart meters by mandate in your uh, geography. Now you got to go to the board and say, oh, I need some more storage. How much more storage? 1,860 times as much storage. Huh? So that was an exogenous event that kind of turned the entire industry upside down. Now with electric vehicles and having to do net metering and reverse billing, it's another one of those inflection points. So unless something like that happens in a lot of industries, Bob, you remain very loyal unless the vendor screws it up. So the vendors can't drop their service to the point where they screw it up, but you can survive as a vendor a lot of transgressions if you're in a company like that with a tool like that. And that's where Oracle has excelled. They've managed to add value as opposed to competing in the commoditized bottom of the stack. Yeah, yeah. Well, Wayne, before we get into the uh, meat of the discussion about the how boards interact with IT, how that's changing today, how it should, maybe parts of it shouldn't change, I wanna offer a word from our sponsor, BMC. 
BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, when automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A game. So Wayne, the rise of enterprise technology and every facet, every corner, end to end of an enterprise means that more and more businesses are dependent on this technology, not just sort of running what I think is foolishly called the back office, but everything, customer engagement, customer interaction, billing services, personnel, talent, so forth like that. So it can't be something that, you know, as you've eloquently discussed over the last couple of years, it can't be something that the board says, ah, I don't really get it. Let's, let's not include that on the agenda. It seems more important than ever. So where do you see this headed, Wayne? Well, the question for boards becomes, to your point, if IT is now part of every organization, and as some said, every organization is in the digital business, everybody's a computer company these days, the board has an obligation to understand enough about technology to do their job. So there are people listening who are probably experienced board directors and don't know much about tech. And there are probably a lot of people who are experienced tech and don't know much about the board. So let's start to bring those conversations together. A, a caution, we will not cover this in the next 20 minutes uh, decisively. Think of this as a table of contents. That's all I want to cover today is these are the topics that I think boards should be aware of. And then, Bob, we can spend the next, I don't know, 20 programs talking about the details, depending on what else is on our minds. Um, and the key thing with the board is what's, what's the board's job? So I'll put it in my terms. There's legal definitions. The board exists to protect the interest of the shareholders from management. So if you're management, you don't own the company if you work for a public company. You, you own a tiny little piece of it, maybe. And so there's what's called the agency problem. The owner and the operator are different. The owner is a million shareholders or 10 million shareholders. And the operator are these kind of 10 C-suite people that somehow got picked. So boards are, exist in the traditional definition. And Bob, I'm talking US, Europe has some different definitions. And now we'll talk a bit later about how they broaden that to stakeholders from shareholders. But right now, if you're going to get sued as a director, it's going to be over not maintaining the interest of the shareholder. And so boards have two duties. They're, they're called fiduciaries. They have a legal responsibility to the owner. And there are two main duties. Some people will have a lot more, but just look at two. Duty of loyalty and duty of care. So I'm a board member. I must be loyal to my organization. And what that means is no self-dealing. I do not want to make a deal for the board to have them buy my company and pay me an exorbitant price. I don't want to be providing them a service, selling them widgets or people or IT and making an inordinate profit. So as a director, you put the interests of the shareholders, the interests of the firm first. That's easy. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. The duty of care is more nuanced. Duty of care, the actual definition, I got it from the internet, is must act in the same manner as a reasonably prudent person in their position. Mm -hmm. Sounds simple. But what does that mean? What's a reasonably prudent person in what position? So that changes over time. When cybersecurity wasn't a big deal, you didn't have to know anything about it. If international taxation isn't a big deal, you don't have to know anything about it. If supply chain and COVID aren't a big deal, 
How many board members were expected to understand virology two years ago? Now, when you go to a board discussion, I was on one this morning, we talked about COVID and Delta and all that for about half the meeting. So now we're expecting a prudent director to know that. And as technology becomes pervasive, boards have to know something to carry out their duty of care. Now, Bob, I've got a certification from the National Association of Corporate Directors. I got it this summer. I, one of the hardest things I've done since grad school, I really had a study to do it. I've got a Carnegie Mellon NACD cert in cybersecurity oversight. And so I've seen what these organizations expect boards to know. So I'm going to boil it down from my own experience and what I've got from other sources. And so let's divide it into two categories, risk and opportunity. Boards need to be aware of certain risk factors of IT and, and opportunity factors. And can we start with cybersecurity? Because that's what boards want to talk about. So everybody in the first risk is cybersecurity. You and I have talked about that three or four times. As a matter of fact, three months ago, I gave you six points for the board. So we won't talk about that at all. Let's talk about the rest of it. So one risk is obsolescence risk, technical debt. You know I have a passion for technical debt. If your stuff is so old that it's not supported by the vendor anymore, you shouldn't be running it. So as a board member, you should be asking, not so much how old is the stuff, but how well is it still supported? Is it three generations old? If they're making the same, I suppose if you're a Rolls-Royce owner, you know you'll have support for 30 years in that car. If you're buying a cheaper car, maybe you only get support for five years. So it's not, it's not age, it's mileage, I guess, to put it that way. Um, another one is project execution risk. If I mess up an ERP project, if I mess up a transition, if I'm one of those banks and I switch to a new deposit system, there was a bank in the UK a couple of years ago that had two outages of over a week for a million and more customers. The CIO lost his job, the CEO lost his job because they couldn't get it right after two tries. So if you're a board member, you should be asking, what are your big risky projects? And how well are you doing on them? And, and be able to dig into that a little bit. These days, you have to ask about key person risk. You got to look at your CIO. You got to look at your CISO. Right now, everybody is finding jobs, changing jobs, the great resignation. People are hiding from the pandemic. They're retiring in record numbers. The demand is off the charts. So you've got to be asking about that. And more and more and more, as IT becomes even more important, the key person risk will be important. Uh, and then the next one is regulatory risk. If you're a bank, healthcare, consumer, you deal with regulations, you deal with laws, you deal with customs. And so as a board member, you've gotta be asking what regulations are relevant to your industry. And of course the board should be able to look that up on their own. And then how well are you uh, achieving the compliance with those regulations? And that's maybe if you're on the audit committee, you're seeing the audit reports already. But if I'm a director, I want to know if you're healthcare, what's your HIPAA compliance? If you are dealing with consumer credit, what's your PCI? What's your PII, personally identifiable information? GDPR, if I'm operating in Europe. So, so there's many of those, and it's important to keep up with them. Uh, but I will also give you a little comment that I've heard before. Compliance equals complacency. Look, I passed my audit. Well, that's the minimum. That's like dealing with the lowest bidder. 
do I want to be just adequate or do I want to know that I'm doing something even better? And the last real risk for a board to ask themselves, ask the company about is reputation risk. What do your employees think? What's, you know, there's tone at the top, there's mood in the middle, and there's buzz at the bottom. So if I was a board member, I might want to listen in on help desk calls. I might want to see what the employees think of the software. Go to Glassdoor and see what people think. Oh, the IT department's horrible. Go ask clients. Go to a trade show and find out the perception. If we're moving to digitized products, if everything runs on an app on the phone, go look at the uh, Google App Store, the Apple App Store, and see if people rate it a two. When you go buy an app, if some company's app is a two, maybe you want to have a conversation with management about what they're doing to make the customers mad. The risk that everybody's supposed to focus on is called operational risk, Bob. And as a board member, it's very hard to understand the IT operation uh, overall. It is easy to ask those other questions. And so you extrapolate the operational risk. If their reputation is horrible, if their compliance is bad, if their gear is obsolete, if they have security problems, think of that as being a messed up operation. If all those things are firing on all the cylinders, then you can probably be comfortable as a board member, subject to your other kind of duty of care of asking around, do they, are they delivering on time? Are they manufacturing things correctly? Because um, IT has a point in that. You should be able to satisfy that risk as a second order risk to all those other things. So, so that's the risk side, Bob. Half, half of the problem. Yeah, Wayne, what's your sense of how well understood uh, those are, right? Because, you know, for you're in a unique spot, right? You, you may, I don't believe you've been a chief risk officer, but uh, you study business, you see it from all different points of view, and you're aware of this. How widely do you think this level of risk is known among, you know, broadly the, you know, IT leadership from senior director up to CIO? Well, the IT leadership, certainly knows these risks are happening because they live them every day. Uh, I'll answer your question a little differently. How well does your risk department understand the IT risks? Probably pretty well. But then you ask the question of what is the board's perception of organizational risk? You know, as I say, right now, the focus is cybersecurity. And even more, it's ransomware part of cybersecurity because that's what's in the news. There's a whole lot of other ways IT can go wrong and mess up your company. And that's where I think boards may lack the appreciation. Uh, they don't understand perhaps, what's my disaster plan? You know, I, I, I live in Houston. We have a little hurricane problem in Houston. So I've got clients where they have, here's my main operation, and here's my backup operation on the other side of Houston. By the way, one hurricane fits over both of those locations. And then let's add to that, that if there's a hurricane and it blows the roofs off everybody's house in Houston and your disaster plan is, we're going to send everybody to Minneapolis, guess what's going to happen? The employees are either going to say no, or they're going to say, great, I need to take my, my uh, spouse, my kids, my dog, my parakeet, my grandma. Uh, can they all come to Minneapolis too? Because I can't leave them. And so you've got to have a disaster plan that recognizes the reality of what you're dealing with. I had a federal regulator tell me once in looking at a bank disaster plan, it's like telling me everybody's going to run down the same flight of uh, fire escape stairs. Guess what? They're not all going to fit. Mm -hmm. um, I learned that lesson a long time ago. So your board has to be aware, your C-suite has to be aware 
of all of those IT risks and be able to put them in context. You know, risk, risk is not an absolute. It's not risky or not risky. It's how much risk am I willing to accept? And as a board, you should be making those choices. Am I going to develop a new airplane? Am I going to build a new hospital? Am I going to build a supply chain? Am I going to build a new shipping terminal? And you deal with those in the non-IT parts of your company. But I think that through fear or ignorance, boards just don't touch enough around the IT implications to manage their risk. Yeah, Wayne, it really calls into account there the um, idea you've brought up before about the qualified technical expert uh, being on the board that to help drive that type of insight. So Wayne, really good overview there of some risks. Now counterbalancing that is the opportunity. Yeah. So when you think about it, another way to look at opportunity is a risk is the chance that something's going to take you down next week or next month or next quarter. An opportunity that's missed is kind of a risk in reverse. If I don't follow up on my opportunities, I wind up becoming obsolete. I get Airbnb'd or Amazon or Ubered out of business. And so opportunity is really risk over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. I'm really good at what I do and what I do becomes increasingly irrelevant. And, and that's what's happening. You know, we're in the acceleration economy. Everybody's moving faster and faster and faster. So if you're not moving as fast as everybody else, what happens? You lose the race. And that's where boards have to say, where does technology give me that opportunity, that edge? And the first one, I will say this, is the right IT leader, the right CIO or CTO or CDO, whatever you call that person. It needs to be a person who can partner with the CEO, who can partner with the C-suite, who can partner with the board. You've heard me say, the CEO gets the CIO they settle for. And that comes to management education, a CEO that's never seen a real partnering CIO who can drive the business forward, who can speak to investors, who can speak to customers, who can speak to the entire workforce. If you don't know what one of them looks like or feels like, go talk to your search firm, go talk to somebody like me, go talk to other CIOs, because there really is a differentiation between I can keep IT running and keep your costs down, and I can be a strategic partner. And so that's kind of the key person risk, but the other side of it. The other one is management technical awareness. You raised it. If the management of the company, if the person running operating unit A and B and C and the CFO and, and everybody, the general counsel, aren't alert to what IT can do for them, then you're going to miss opportunities. If you're in manufacturing, what's going to happen? What, what would happen if you could put machine vision into your operation? If you're a logistics, what's the self-driving car going to do? And I was at a, I spoke at a trucking conference and we talked a lot about not only self-driving, but what would an over-the-road truck have to be, an electric vehicle, to be an economical and useful tool for that industry? And we talked about things that don't matter when you're running cars, but they matter when you're running big trucks or school buses or construction equipment. So if you're, and by the way, I will say this, National Home Delivery Association business executives were right up there with the techies talking about issues of battery life and autonomous vehicles because it's the lifeblood of their industry. And if you can't articulate it, you're gonna miss opportunities and, and really fall for vendor hype. So you've gotta know it at the business unit level. They don't have to be techies. They need to be able to come to the CIO and say, I understand that this is a question, 
let's talk about A versus B versus C. But to say, don't bother me with that tech stuff. I'm in the trucking business, construction business, manufacturing business. You are not the person who ought to be there. And the board should be listening for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and the next one um, is investments. What are you investing in? Uh, I think there are three kinds of investments boards should ask about. Obviously, again, we've talked about the uh, investments in digital transformation. And I won't beat that to death, but recognize it's not a question for your CIO, if you're a board member, it's a question for your CEO, and a question to ask yourselves. What are you doing about your culture, your markets, your products, your customer experience, your employee experience? Now, how are you partnering with IT internally and externally to deliver? But are you worried about what happens when people adopt cell phones or when 5G is ubiquitous or when drones are flying around? What happens to your business and you ought to be making those transformational investments? The flip side of that is digital optimization. What are you doing to make your existing business faster, cheaper, higher quality, more auditable, because audit expense, which is often overlooked, is significant. If I can automate stuff, my audit expense goes way down. If I automate stuff, my quality should go way up. So should I be making those investments to build a better, faster, cheaper product? Absolutely. Not transformational, but it frees up the capital. It puts me in a better position to serve my customers. And the third category that boards need to ask about, and Bob, you know I'm going to be talking about this over the next couple of weeks, is this work from home change. We are now 20 months into a pandemic where we sent the office workers home. A lot of vendors, Microsoft just the other day said, that we're not coming back for a while and we're not sure when. Um, this is a big change. Another vendor came out today and said, we are no longer going to be worried about these premiums and uh, cuts and pay for where you work. We're going to pay you for the work you do. So after two years away from the office, are people really going to go back? Um, with all the technology enhancements, look, you and I now have really good cameras, good lighting, good microphones. I listened to it was six, 12 board members today at different companies, and all of them had great cameras and great mics and great lighting. 20 months ago, it was a mess. Yeah. So we've got better tools. We're more comfortable doing this. And I'll ask you, uh, if I was a board member, I'd ask them, what are you doing about the culture of the company? There was a study that came out. Microsoft was the one studied with some sociology group that published a refereed paper about how the culture is changing and you need to put more effort into maintaining that cultural identity. Now, the culture is not going to be the same when we communicate like we're doing now. But what do we have to do to counter that? What do we do with education and training and mentoring? I do a lot of mentoring now that I didn't do 20 months ago with grad students, with mid-career workers who just approach me on LinkedIn. People are, are hungry for that in a way that maybe they got around the quote-unquote water cooler before mm -hmm. or the lunch at the, you know, the company cafeteria. So we have to make an effort. And that's what if I was a board member, I'd be asking what are you, the company, doing about the work from home, work from anywhere revolution to maintain the culture and to build the tools so that your workforce can collaborate wherever they are and however they are, differently able, different languages, different time zones, different family situations. And so you've got to be making that third category of investment that wasn't even on my list 20 months ago. And then the last question I think the boards need to be asking about investment is what's the impact of disruptive technology? 
What's going to happen if I can do robotic surgery, if I'm in the healthcare business? What's going to happen with drones? I think I told you my story once. Somebody was challenging me, how would you change the trash business? And I said, uh, well, let's see. Amazon delivers stuff, and let's say they deliver drones, so the drone flies to your window with your little widget in the box. What if Amazon had a trash company where you could hand them an Amazon trash bag? Because we don't want to deadhead trucks, run them empty. We don't want to run the drones empty. So what if Amazon went in the trash business, and instead of a whole trash can once a week, you gave it a little bag that went to an Amazon landfill sorted by Amazon robots into all the categories, because they're probably better at it than anybody. What would that do to the traditional garbage truck industry? Hmm. So ask yourself those questions. What would happen if, and if boards aren't asking that and don't have technology partners that can help them, they're going to wind up, as I say, Amazon, Airbnb, and Uber out of business. So their opportunity side is risk. Risk side is risk. Both of them applied correctly, invested in correctly, give you an opportunity to run faster in the acceleration economy than the people around you. And it's about running faster than your competitors, running faster than your peers, and kind of catching up with the next industry. So you can be a higher margin, higher stickiness, higher customer satisfaction in a company and survive for the long run. No, Wayne, I I really like how you put those sort of two things together here, right? Because so much uh, everybody in a lot of businesses is worried about or thinks about or is driven by the opportunities. But um, again, this interconnectedness of all parts of a business and this insertion of the customer at the center of things, that changes the nature of stuff. And it does, it certainly raises the opportunity, but as you pointed out, it raises the risk. And I think the well-informed executive, whatever part of the C-suite she or he occupies, has to be able to see both of these sort of in, you know, counterpoise there and, you know, the impact one has on the other. And then the other piece, Wayne, that I think you, you touched on a number of times is what's the culture of this company as these changes take hold, as you try to say, okay, we're going to pursue opportunities, but with the full intelligence of what the risk is around those. And if the culture is one of sort of command and control and, you know, hey, don't raise your head and you won't get in trouble and so on like that, I, I all those good intentions of the first part aren't going to matter if you've got a culture that isn't fully aligned with the new direction, the new strategy, and the new capabilities of the company. But culture matters more than anything. And so here we are. We've now got the technology that allows us to, dare I say it, eliminate middle management. Well, Why did we put middle management in, in the first place? We had somebody running the steel mill or the flour mill or the, the loom, and then we had a bunch of workers, and we kept adding layers. Why? Because we had to get the command down to control the people, and then we had to get the information back up. So how many people in middle management relay somebody else's orders and relay somebody else's information? We've now got the point where we can disintermediate, as banks say, get rid of the middle group. So we've got that opportunity with technology. We've had it for a while. But culturally, we've now sent everybody home. So culturally, maybe we get away from the command and control and more about the self-organizing, more about the communicating groups that can work together better. And we'll send the information up from the widget itself to the CEO, to the CFO, to the board. So I think, Bob, we're at an opportunity. And again, we talk about the next normal and the acceleration economy. Making these small changes, I'm going to make a little bitty tweak here and a little bitty tweak there. Maybe that's not the right answer. Maybe it's time the legacy company said, yep, 
We have better communication. Yep, we have Internet of Things. Yep, we have new ubiquitous networking. Yep, we have more people uh, competing with us. Yep, we have everybody working at home. What does that turn out to be when you put it in the, in the blender and mix it all up? Yeah. And I think it turns out to be a very different company um, that is managed much more by exception than by executive fiat and direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Wayne, you've given uh, everybody lots and lots to think about, as you, you normally do. Really like and appreciate the, the sense of broad perspective you bring to this. So uh, too often, I think the, the business of the last handful of decades has been driven by, well, the finance people think this way and IT thinks this way and sales think this way. And that's all fine. We have our specializations, but more and more, it's got to be an end-to-end view of things that's going on. You've raised a lot of uh, good ideas about this, good perspectives on it. So Wayne, as always, thank you very much for, for sharing some great insights. I'm happy to do it. And I'll just make one last comment to what you said. We, you and I participated in the future of the CFO, and we talked about those very same things. How do we break down the silo? The CFO and the CIO both see information across the company where most other executives see it up and down. So, Bob, I think a lot of the stuff we're putting together and talking about is kind of wrapping itself around each other. And I'll say it again, acceleration economy is an idea, accelerating an idea, accelerating an idea. And I'm really happy to be having these conversations with you. Wayne, same here, same here. Great stuff. Thanks very much for that. And to all of you for being with us, thanks so much for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live here and some of Wayne Satan's ideas on, you know, where the world's headed and what businesses need to do to not just keep up with it, but get out ahead of it and thrive in this acceleration economy. Thanks a lot for being with us, everyone. We'll see you next time.